0: James chapter 2, then, please. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. James is, in this passage, is going to specifically address this area of faith and works. In fact, if you look at verse 17, you can, you can see the theme running through the verses. Verse 17, it says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, faith without works is dead. Verse 26, faith without works is dead. So the theme is this, the talking through this whole area of faith and works. What does that mean? So the theme is faith and works. And as he says, faith without works is dead. So that's what he's going to focus on and emphasize here. Uh, I hesitate to show you the rest of the slide because you're going to get the outline and you're going to say, okay, I can sleep through the rest of the service. Please don't do that. As you look at these verses, this is what we're going to see. There's three faces of faith. There's dead faith. As we look at verses 14 uh, through 17. This touches the intellect, but it does not save. Then there's demonic faith. And he uses kind of a provocative statement here to catch their attention. It involves the intellect and emotions, but it does not save. In fact, if you look at the verses there, it says, And the demons believe and trembled. I mean, they, they, they were emotionally involved in this. I mean, that, that's uh, so it involves intellect and emotion, but it does not save. They're demons. They already made their choice. When they fell from heaven, following Satan himself, their leader, they became part of that heavenly host referred to there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. That heavenly host that we're fighting against, that battle that's going on behind the scenes, that's why in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said that we need to put on the whole armor of Christ or put on the whole armor in preparation for this battle that's going on behind the scenes, this spiritual battle, this oppression. Well, this is demonic. Well, they believed and trembled, but it does not save. Dynamic faith. This is saving faith. This engages the mind. In other words, you understand the truth. It affects the heart. In other words, you desire the truth. There is an emotional response to the truth. You desire it, and then this is the part that's missing Of course all others, and that's the will. It acts upon truth. It understands truth, it desires truth, and then it acts upon that truth. As we will see there in dynamic faith, verses 21 to 26. The three faces of faith. Faith, as you know, is one of the key doctrines of Scripture. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the sinner is saved through faith, faith, or by grace he saved through faith. In Second Corinthians 5:7, 5, 5, the believer is to walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6: Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It's impossible to please God, please God, without faith. And then Romans 1:17: The just shall live by faith. The believer is to live by faith. And then, of course, there's a discussion in Romans chapter 4, which specifically focuses on saving faith. And then, of course, we have the great chapter of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about living faith, how that how that is demonstrated and lived out. How do you live out your salvation? So faith is one of the key doctrines of Scripture. That's just some of the examples. How do we define faith? The primary verse we turn to is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith... Okay, this is what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. That substance has to do, uh, the this is an unshakable confidence hoped for has to do in future promises. Unshakable confidence in future promises. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. This is the firm, firm conviction of past revelation to be true. I wasn't there when they wrote this. I wasn't there when many of these, well, all of these events happened. I wasn't there. So faith is that, is that unshakable confidence in future promises and the firm conviction of past revelation to be true. That's what faith is. Did you get all that? Okay, let me give you the simple explanation. Faith is humble dependence that generates a desire for obedient living. Faith is a humble dependence that generates a desire for obedient living. I put my faith, I put my trust, I put my belief, and it generates, because I'm saying I have that, it's going to generate some obedient actions. And that's really, in many respects, what Paul and James are addressing as they look at this whole area of faith. Faith is a confidence that God's word is true, conviction that acting on that truth will bring blessings. It's the humble dependence that generates a desire for obedient living. Now, I cannot I can't proceed through the rest of the section here without addressing to some extent Paul and James when it comes to faith. This is a uh, to use a, a term, this is a f- This is a theological football. In other words, if you know, I'm not talking about soccer, I'm talking about a football. If you kick a football, you have no idea which direction it's going to bounce when it lands. And so this is a theological football. So in my explanation of it, I'm doing the best I can so so you can see where Paul's coming from and understand what James is saying. So let's work through it patiently. First of all, Paul, Romans 3:28: "A man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law." James chapter 2: 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. First of all, as we, as we look at Paul and James, you need to understand is that they knew their audience. Who were they talking to? And that's probably the key to understanding their approaches to faith and works and works and faith. Who is their audience? Who are they talking to? In, in Paul is confronting Jewish legalism that insists that justification is Jesus Christ plus regulations of some type. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, uh, as he talks to the Colossians, he said, Now you've heard it then been said, touch not, taste not, handle not. See, that, that's Jesus Christ plus the do's and don'ts. So he was confronting Jewish legalism that says that the justification is Jesus Christ plus. Where James, he's confronting that he's confronting uh, those who embraced Christian liberty or Christian license. He was, he was confronting those who were saying, I'm saved from past, present, and future sins, so therefore I can live any way I want. He's addressing the saved man who is living in liberty and license. In fact, uh, Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 6. He's, he's addressing those who are embracing liberty and license to the exclusion of the, of the living faith that has taken place in their life. So James is confronting those who, are, who have embraced Christian liberty and license. Paul... Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Simple message. I mean, if you're here this morning, you do not know Christ as your own personal Savior. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Where does James, how how does he come across? He's saying that the justified will demonstrate their new life in Christ alone. He's saying that, that, okay, if that's true, what Paul said is true, this is also true. You will demonstrate your faith in Christ alone. If it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will demonstrate that in your life, your new life in Christ alone. 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You're a new creation. You need to show it. You need to demonstrate it. You need to, to be a living example of an individual who does know Christ by your actions, but not just by your words. The so Justified will demonstrate their new life in Christ alone. Paul, he's rooting out a works-based salvation. In fact, in Galatians, he calls it another gospel. He's rooting it out. Not rooting it on, he's rooting, he's digging it out. He's gardening and trying to get rid of the weeds that are confusing the message of grace. Where James, stimulating a sluggish faith that has minimized the works of righteousness. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 18, here in this passage, he says, show me, show me, show me, and then show me again. He's stimulating a sluggish faith faith that has minimized the works of righteousness. Does that help a little bit? Okay, this statement, I think, not original with me, but I think it draws it all together. Paul and James are standing back to back confronting different foes of the same gospel. Do you see it? They're combating different foes of the same gospel. Those who are saying, it's Jesus Christ plus work, And those who are saying, I don't need to show, after all, I am a believer. Show me. Demonstrate it. Is there a conflict? No, I don't believe there's a conflict. I believe they're standing back to back, combating different foes of the same same gospel. All right, now that brings us to the three phases of faith. The first phase of faith is dead faith, verses 14 to 17. He starts off with a question, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Or let me add these words, I think, that help clarify that last question. Can that kind of faith save them? What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? This is what's called a rhetorical question, which demands, expects the answer, no, no. But also the fact that he he brings a question, very similar to Christ in his teaching, as he often approached, remember the the woman at the well? Remember Nicodemus when he came to him? He used questions. Questions prick the conscience. He's trying to get them to think, to respond. So even as we read that this morning, what does it profit you, my brethren? If someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can that kind of faith save him? How would you respond to that? The rhetorical question expects the answer of no, but it stirs your conscience. He's not making an accusation, he's making a question. The accusations close the spirit, where questions prick the conscience to think through the spiritual impact of that. He's echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. So there are many, though, who profess, who never possess Jesus Christ their Savior. The point, I believe, is this. Any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good works is a false declaration. Any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good works is a false declaration. At the end of the service, as we come to the conclusion, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Remember this point. Verses 15 to 17, he then gives this simple illustration. If a brother or sister, and I believe, personally, I believe this has referring to specifically to those who are of the saved household, those who are born again. Now that doesn't mean that you should not be gracious and kind to a neighbor, even though they don't know Christ, if there's a real need there. It doesn't mean like we should not help up the, like the Pregnancy Research Center who's ministering to young ladies who are in trouble or who do not obviously know Christ in many, many cases. We should help out as best we can. But I believe this is specifically talking about a brother and sister in Christ. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. In other words, basically, God bless you, have a good day. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Again, you've got this rhetorical question. The expected answer is nothing. It doesn't profit anything, obviously. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, the theme of the theme that we're covering here, as we look at these verses, the aspect of good works, of this type of good works, of this works of compassion, if you want to put it that way, is emphasized in First John chapter three, verse seventeen to eighteen. So the point I'm trying to make is this: this isn't a doctrine unique to James. It's not like James; he's standing out here alone on the street waiting to get hit by the bus. This is something that's echoed by others throughout the scriptures. This is James brings it all together. And he's really hitting home hard on this because these Jewish believers that have left out of, and dispersed out of Jerusalem because of persecution were struggling with this whole area. So he's really hitting it hard. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. John says, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in action and in truth. Also, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. And then Luke chapter 10, verse 29 to 37. Of course, this is a parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, And I'm not going to read the the passage to you. Some of you are familiar with with it. If you're not, it's in Luke chapter 10, verses 29 to 37. But the Good Samaritan, a man, Jewish traveler, was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on the way to that trip, there were robbers that set upon him. And they not only robbed him and beat him, and, and the Scripture says left him half dead, or he was dying. And then a priest came along, and saw the man lying there, saw that he was a fellow Jew, obviously. He paused, and then he walked on the other side. He did not assist him, he did not go up to him to try to help him. He didn't even ask him if he was alive. He passed and went on the other side. The priest. Then there was a Levite. This is a Levite would be one who knows the interpretation, actively involved in the interpretation of Scripture. In other words, they both knew the Word. He walked up and saw the man lying there, and he paused and walked on the other side. And then the Samaritan, the Samaritan, remember the Samaritans were half-Jews, and they hated, the Jews hated the Samaritans, Samaritans Samaritans hated the Jews. The Samaritan stopped, went over to him, bound up his wounds as best he could, provided transportation of him to a place where he could be cared for, and that he would cover the cost. The parable of the good Samaritan, the Levite, the priest, they had religious training. Neither paused to assist the dying man. At the side of the road. The Levite and the and the priest could articulate and defend their faith, but neither demonstrated that faith in loving works. So Paul the point is that James is not the only one addressing this issue. It's just as he's putting it together in a package for us to try to, to assimilate it and digest it. I came across this illustration, a young boy on an errand for his mother had just bought a dozen eggs. Walking out of the store, he tripped and dropped the sack. All the eggs broke and the sidewalk was a mess. The boy tried not to cry. A few people gathered to see if he was okay and to tell him how sorry they were. In the midst of the words of pity, one man handed the boy a quarter. Then he turned to the group and said, I care 25 cents worth. How much do the rest of you care? That's James 2.16. Works don't mean much when we have the ability to do more. Faith without works is like words and compassion without acts of compassion. I've, I've, I've used this story before, so it's redundant, but uh, some of you have not heard this. My father, my father told me he loved me when I was 32 years old. And you said, that's so, so awful. You just must have had a terrible relationship with your father. Actually, we had a great relationship. I never doubted my father loved me. Because in those first 32 years, he demonstrated it over and over and over again. It just happened that a situation we were in, when I was that old, which is a long time ago, he said, by the way, Ken, I love you. He demonstrated I never questioned it. It was the first time he ever said it. But he demonstrated it over and over. Faith without works is like words of compassion without acts of compassion. It's dead. The love my father had for me was alive. He demonstrated it over and over and over. The, fir- the third face of faith. I'm sorry. Second face of faith is demonic faith. But someone will say. "This." I, I, when I read, read this, I'm just thinking... James, you're such a master teacher. You know, as he's up teaching and he's explaining, he's examining these things. You've heard it said, haven't you? Haven't you heard this said? Someone would say. He's not saying he's saying. He said, you know, someone out there. Now, maybe it was you, but someone said, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, now he's getting personal. Personal. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Verse 19. Now he gets a little provocative. He's he's trying to provoke them, he's trying to arrest their attention. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. But do you want to know, old foolish man? He brings it to a conclusion. Do you want to know, old foolish man, that faith without works is dead? The challenge there in verse 18, show me. Faith is invisible except for the works it produces. We read about Rahab here in this passage. When was Rahab justified? We're not told exactly when. We don't know that. We all have different experiences in which, with the way we come to Christ. Paul came to Christ on the road to Damascus. And if I'm not saved like Paul, then I must not be saved. I've never been to Damascus, let alone saved on the road to Damascus. Then that point isn't where and how and when, but do you have faith, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior? Because it's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Being a believer be- involves trusting Christ and living Christ. You receive life, and then you reveal life. The challenge is there. You don't just trust, but you live. You don't just receive, but you reveal. Then there's the confession. And he's, he's, he's using this as he talks here. He arrests their attention. He begins off, he begins, you believe that there is one God. Now, remember his audience. These are Jewish believers who have, because of persecution, have left Jerusalem. This is what's called the Shema. This is, this is the Jewish man's confession of faith found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 4. A devout Jew would repeat this twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he rests their attention. Immediately they perk right up. This is something they've heard before. In fact, even though they're saved, they may even still kind of repeat this, but it was so embedded in their heart and their mind. This is something their parents did. This is something they did. is are so. He rests their attention. Then he awakens their complacency with a shock therapy saying, the demons believe and tremble. The demons have faith. Does that surprise you? They believe in the existence of God. Verse 19. They believe in the deity of Christ in Mark chapter 3, verse 11 to 12. They believe in an existence of a place of punishment in Luke chapter 8, where the demons say, do not put us into the abyss. But also in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, they recognize that Jesus is the judge. They believe these things. They actually believe these things. They believe many times more than you believe. But they believe these things to be true. The point, I believe, is this. A person can be enlightened in his mind and stirred in his heart and can be lost forever. They believed and trembled. That word trembled is is really with terror. There's such an emotional response. it's, it's, It's to break out in a cold sweat. They believed these things to be true, and they believed it so much that they would shudder at the fact that these things were true. But they're lost forever. Demonic faith. The point is a person can be enlightened in his mind, stirred in his heart, and be lost forever. The conclusion there in verse 20, this is the difference, I think because, you know sometimes a teacher will be teaching long, "You've heard it, and I've heard it too. I've tried not to do that, but I probably have, is they, they will make some provocative statement. And that, that is to, you know, to get your rest of your attention. Throw some statement out there. This outlandish statement. But they never answer the question. You walk away from that class, you walk away from that discussion, that study, and you're going like, so what does that mean? Or how does that affect my life? And James, he threw that out there. Demons believe. But he brings it to a conclusion here in verse 20 when he says, To them, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? The word foolish means vain, empty, hollow. Do you want to know? Indicates that there is possibly an unwillingness to really know the truth. uh, Edmund Hebert said responded this way: He said, "It's a perversity of the will." I'm sitting here listening. I know what you say is true, but I really don't want to obey. I really don't want to do it. It's a perversity of the will. Oh, foolish man, vain, empty, hollow, do you want to know? Really? And then James states the obvious outcome, even though those may refuse to act upon it, you're dead. Barren. Unproductive, worthless, good for nothing, empty. You're dead. It reminds me of the story of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel preached the word. He was a prophet, and he preached the word. But he also his messages also were often demonstrated. In other words, he didn't just preach it. Many times he would live it, and in that living it, he would be able to to communicate the message that God gave him. This is one of the. This is an example of that. God came to Ezekiel and he said. I want you to buy a new linen cloth. This is undergarments. Now, it was, it was very significant that they kept their undergarments clean. I want you to go buy new undergarments, and I want you to go and walk to the Euphrates River. And I want you to take those undergarments, and I want you to bury them in the bank of the river. Now, that took three months. I believe it was three months there and three months back. So the, the time passed, and... He was gone, and somebody may have said, well, where'd you go? I said, well, I had my undergarments, my linen cloth, and I took it and I buried it in the bank of Euphrates. And they're going, yes, we've always thought, Ezekiel, you're a little off. Well, then God came to him and says, I want you to go to the bank of the Euphrates River and dig them up and bring them back. So he takes this trip, and he gets back and says, where have you been? Z-? Well, see, I, I remember that linen cloth I had, those undergarments? I, I, went and I unburied them. I, I brought them back. What was the message? God said to Ezekiel, He said, Those iron garments are just like Israel. They're worthless. They're barren. They're empty. They're dead. James states the obvious outcome dead. Faith without works is dead. It's barren. It's defective. It's empty. You can tell me, and tell me, and tell me. I can tell you. But if I don't demonstrate it, where's the reality of it? Which brings us to the third phase of faith. Dynamic faith. Dynamic faith is saving faith. This is real. It has power. It results in a changed life. Both Abraham and Rahab demonstrate that. They had dynamic faith. Dynamic faith is based on the word of God. Faith, in fact, in Genesis chapter 22. Good example of that. Genesis chapter 22, which is one of the references used here about Abraham. God came to Abraham and he said, I want to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. So that was God's word to Abraham. It says Abraham got up the next day, and I, th- I believe it was a three-day journey. Any part of the time, he could have turned around or asked why. We have no record of that. It just it was, God said it, it was immediate obedience. He acted on the Word of God. Dynamic faith is based on the Word of God. A man in a jungle bows down before an idle stone. He trusts it will help him, but he receives no help. No matter how much faith a person Generates, how much passion a person generates, if not directed at the right object, it will accomplish nothing. Remember Elijah? He built this altar, or actually he challenged the idol worshipers, the Baal worshipers, the priests. He challenged them to this demonstration. They built their altar, put their sacrifice on it, and began praying to their God, their idol. Because they could not set fire to it. The God, the idol that they had, had to set fire to it to prove that he was real. In fact, their passion, they were so passionate about it that they begin to dance around it and pray and cut themselves to basically sacrifice themselves. Nothing happened. Then Elijah gets up there. I think his prayer was probably maybe eight, eight words, ten words. And he prays and, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell this part he poured water on top of that altar to soak it. He prayed once, it was done. Faith is only as good as its object. He says there, I believe, maybe the testimony of many sincere people, but in whom do you believe? What do you believe? Abraham believed God. Illustration of the Ethiopian eunuch. He was coming back from Jerusalem. This is Acts chapter 8. He's coming back from Jerusalem and he's reading the scriptures. He's in the book of Isaiah. And he's reading along and God, through the Spirit of God, sent Philip to ride with him or be by him in the chariot. He said, I don't understand what I'm reading. I don't get it. And so Philip began in the Old Testament Scriptures up through the new events that just happened with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, explained to him that that Isaiah 53 was about Christ. So they're writing along, and the Ethiopian says to him, because he sees water. Apparently, Philip covered a myriad of subjects, including not only salvation, but even the aspect of believers' baptism. He says, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip looked at him and says, if you believe with all your heart. In other words, basically what he was saying is, what do you believe? What is it you really believe? And and the Ethiopian said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Dynamic faith is based on the Word of God. What do they believe? I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God this is i believe the point is we are not saved by faith in faith we are saved by faith in Christ as revealed in his word it's based on the word of God the second thing dynamic faith involves the whole man mind heart and will Dead faith touches only the intellect. I know. Demonic faith involves the intellect and the heart. I feel. Dynamic faith engages the intellect, the emotions, the will. I take action. In the mind, remember that first slide, the mind understands truth, the heart desires truth, and the will acts upon truth. And that's the key. It's like communication. It's talking, listening, and understanding. We can talk about it, and we can listen all we want, but do you truly understand See, my mind, my my intellect, I understand the truth, I embrace the truth. My heart, I have a desire, I I feel I need to make a a response. And the will says, I act upon that truth. I personally put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Rahab and Abraham were people of action. God spoke, they obeyed. She hid the spies, she hung the red cord. Abraham lifted his, his knife to slay his son, And the the angel of the Lord came by and said, Hold, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. That's a key phrase. We don't know until Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham actually believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if he slayed him on the altar. But regardless of the consequences, he was going to obey God. Dynamic faith involves the whole man, the mind, the heart, and the will. It takes action. Dynamic faith leads to action. Obedience is not an isolated event, but it continues for a lifetime. Wherever there is unbelief, there will be evidence of unbelief. Galatians chapter 2 says, Wherever there is, yeah, I said it right. Sorry, I'm having trouble reading my writing. I'm old school. You know, a lot of pastors now they type it all out. I scratch and sniff. (laughs) Wherever there is unbelief, there will be evidence of unbelief. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. There's works of the law. Sinners attempt to place God, to please God by obeying the law of Moses. It's impossible. In Galatians chapter 5, 19, there's works of flesh. This is done by the unsaved who live for things of their old nature. Colossians 1 21, there's wicked works. This identifies those who are in their lost condition before salvation. In Hebrews 9, verse 14, there's dead works. The blood of Christ has redeemed us from worthless worthless works that cannot save us, which are dead works. The point is this, where there is dynamic faith, that is saving faith, you always have good works. You're going to have one or the other. Your works will be wicked, they're the works of the flesh, works of the law, they're dead works. But wherever there is dynamic faith, that is saving faith, you always have good works. The point being, obedience is not an isolated event, but continues for a lifetime. I came across this quote. I'm not saying it's the best quote. It's a good quote. And I think it summarizes it as best as I can what we just talked about. There really is no conflict between faith and works. In the Christian life, they go together like inhaling and exhaling. Faith is taking the gospel in. And works is taking the gospel out. Does that make sense? Now, I want to ask you a series of questions. I want you to seriously contemplate. This is for spiritual inventory. This is for a spiritual evaluation. Number one. was there a time when you honestly realized that you were a sinner and admitted this to yourself and to god number 2 was there a time when your heart was stirred to flee from the wrath to come number 3 do you really truly understand the gospel that Christ died for your sins and then rose again? Do you understand and confess that you cannot save yourself? Number four, did you sincerely repent of your sins and turn from them? Or do you secretly love sin and want to enjoy it? Number five, have you trusted Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Do you enjoy a living relationship with Him through the Word and in the Spirit? Number six, has there been a change in your life? Do you maintain good works or are your works occasional and weak? Do you seek to grow in the things of the Lord? Can others tell that you have been with Jesus? Number seven. Do you have a desire to share Christ with others? Or are you ashamed of him? Number eight. Do you enjoy the fellowship of with God's people? Does worship delight you? Number nine. Are you ready for the Lord's return? Or would you be ashamed if He came right now? Psalm 139, verse 23-24. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me, And know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Faith and works. There really is no conflict. Faith is taking the gospel in, and works is taking the gospel out. But the question is where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ? heads bowed and eyes closed as we pray together pray silently I pray Lord as we come to you now that there may be a true introspection that there may be a spiritual inventory and evaluation going on we thank you for the the Spirit of God moving upon James' heart to write these things to us. And Father, we pray even as we take that spiritual inventory, whether one is here that doesn't know Christ or another is here and isn't walking with Christ, or another isn't if the Lord return, is even ready to meet him in the air, because they love their sin more than they love their heavenly Father. If you're, if you're here this morning, and you say, Pastor Ken, I would love to have someone show me from the Word of God how I can be saved, how I can know I have eternal life. As it says in John 3, that I can know that I'm born again. I will not embarrass you. That's not, that's not the point. The point is I want to give you an opportunity to have someone share for me what the Scriptures, I'll talk to you privately after the service. Is there anyone like that? Secondly, if you're sitting here this morning and you are saved, you know that if you died right now, you would go to heaven. You are ready to meet him in the air, but at the same time, you're not living in obedience. You're always concerned about the consequences, you're not concerned about being obedient to the truth. You say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me. Is there anyone like that? Father, you know our hearts, you know our desires. We don't want to just preach and teach the word, but we want to live the word. Guide us in that as we go forward through this day and through this week to be under your continuing influence, your control, as the Spirit of God not only lives within us, but seeks to have him control us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.